Hello, and welcome to the Murphy Law Firm Teleconference. This month, our focus is on hot topics and other important issues related to H-1Bs. My name is Aaron Finkelstein. I am the managing attorney at the Murphy Law Firm. I have with me today two outstanding attorneys from our non-immigrant visa H-1B department, supervising attorneys Chris Drynan and Ashley Barbone. Both are extremely knowledgeable practitioners and will be able to give us a wonderful perspective to recent developments in this area. Our first top topic is whether an amended H-1B petition is required when an employee is moved to another work location or if merely updating the LCA prior to moving to the new work location is good enough. Although there has not been a change in the law, in its correspondence and communication with stakeholders and petitioning employers, the USCIS has indicated that their policy is shifting. USCIS recent statements indicate that it is now taking the position that an H-1B petition must be filed whenever there is a change in work location or even end client in some circumstances. Failure to file an amended petition may cause the H-1B worker to fall out of status and the employer to be non-compliant with the terms and conditions of approved petitions. USCIS has been conducting post-approval site visits to the work locations listed on the I-129 and the LCA to verify the information in the petition. These site visits lead to follow-up emails and or notices of intent to revoke the H-1B. In addition, the USCIS is issuing requests for evidence on H-1B extension petitions to determine whether the H-1B worker has maintained status and if the employer has been compliant. So here we have it, folks. New LCAs versus H-1B amendments. Ashley, has the law regarding when an amendment, amended petition is required and what steps must be taken when an H-1B worker is moved to a new work location changed at all? It has not changed, Aaron. It remains the same in that the Department of Labor, Labor Regulations require an employer to either repost the LCA posting notice or the certified LCA at a new work site uh, within the same metropolitan statistical area, excuse me, or the area of intended employment prior to moving uh, the H-1B worker to a new location. If the H-1B worker is going to move to a new location outside the MSA or the area of intended employment that's covered by that original LCA, then the employer must obtain a new certified LCA prior to moving the employee to the new location. Um, an amended H-1B petition is required if the H-1B worker is placed at a new work site prior to complying with the posting requirements or obtaining a new certified LCA. Wow. So it looks like not a lot has changed. Maybe policy memos, USCIS, adjudicators field manual. I know that we've been relying on a lot of these authorities for the last 10 years. Um, in those authorities, I believe it said that amended petitions are not required just for the mere transfer of an H-1B worker to a new work site. Ashley, is that still correct? That's true. I mean, for the last 10 years or so, we have uh, practitioners and employers alike have been relying on adjudicator field manual and USCIS memo and letters as authority that amended petitions are not required. Um, basically, these memos state that a mere transfer to another work site does not require filing an amended petition as long as the petitioner remains the same and the, and the um, change in the work location does not invalidate the LCA. There's also a letter from Efren Hernandez at the Department of Homeland Security from 2003 where he stated in a response to a question that an amended petition is not required 
where the H-1B worker moves to a new work site as long as the following occur. A new LCA is certified prior to moving the employee, the appropriate posting takes place, and the wage and hour obligations are satisfied. Mr. Hernandez does state, though, in his letter that if this does not occur in this correct order, then an amended petition is required. And again, since uh, 2003, uh, we have relied on this letter that amended um, petitions are not required um, as long as, as this occurs. And however, this letter is not really a binding policy for USCIS. That's so correct. maybe that helps to explain why they have the flexibility to have some type of shift. Chris, what do you think? Are there, we, we talked about the possibility that current trends are shifting towards requiring amended petitions whenever the work location changes. Uh, it's clear that, that that's the position that USCIS is moving towards, uh, that a change in work location or even an in-client uh, is a material change uh, and therefore requires an amended H-1B petition to be filed. Um, the employer needs to immediately file the amended petition and notify USCIS of these changes um, to the terms and conditions of the employment. Now, failure to do so could have some very serious negative consequences both to the employer excuse me, to the employer and the employee. Recently, uh, the California Service Center came out, uh, I believe it was in a liaison meeting, and said that their legal counsel has taken this position. Um, and apparently USCIS, we're told, is in the process of developing new guidance uh, on this issue. Um, there are also now, we're seeing a lot of site visits. Um, USCIS has been conducting site visits which go to the location that is listed on the I-129 and on the LCA. Um, and USCIS has been issuing follow-up emails and notices of intent to revoke what, what we call NORS um, to H-1B petitions that are already approved when this site visit does not find that the H-1B uh, worker is there any longer. Uh, he's perhaps has moved some, he or she has perhaps moved somewhere else and that no amended petition has been filed. Um, USCIS has, in some instances, issued NORS even where the employer has obtained a certified labor condition application, LCA, before they move the H-1B worker to the new location. Um, now, the only way really to update USCIS of a new work location is by going ahead and filing the amended H-1B, which is filed on Form I-129 as any H-1B is. Um, another development we've been seeing recently is a new form of request for evidence, or RFE, uh, that we've seen on H-1B extension petitions, where there's been a change in work location. Um, this RFE makes it clear that USCIS is adopting the position that a change in work location or in client is a material change, and that if you fail to get a new LCA and file an amendment, an amended petition with each change, um, that the worker is considered to be out of status. Um, is there anything unique about these RFEs that you're seeing? Do they just focus on the current petition and the current LCA that's been filed? Is there any history that they go into? No, that's the, that's the odd thing about these, uh, about these RFEs. They are very clearly looking back at the prior petition. Um, they're inquiring where the person has been uh, since the approval of the last H-1B. So they're asking for signed itineraries from the employer and the employee uh, where have you been working? What have you been? What have your duties been? They want payroll records. If there's been a change in location or in client, they want to see the LCA and the and the amendment. Um, that's that's the different thing about these RFEs. That's what makes them different. And if it's a change to a different employer, are they asking for old employer information? 
which may be hard to obtain? They certainly are. Uh, basically, they want to see proof that uh, the employee has been maintaining their status for the entire period since the last approval. Okay. Thank you. Ashley, I'm just curious. What's the big deal? Why, is there a significant um, advantage to just filing LCAs and to not filing the amended H-1B petition? Why as an employer can't I just look at this as, oh, it's a policy change, I have to dot this I instead of that I? Okay. Well, there are a few advantages to, to not filing the amended petition. And one is the low cost in um, just doing a new certified LCA. In fact, there's no filing fee to do a certified LCA with the Department of Labor. And the other advantage is that you can move employees very quickly. It um, takes about seven days to get a labor certification application certified by the Department of Labor, and the employee can move to that new location once the LCA is certified. Um, while there are you know, additional costs incurred in filing the amended petition, including attorney fees, um, if the petition is filed as an amendment only without a request for an extension, then the only government filing fee is the, the 325 base filing fees required and premium processing, if, but that's optional. So we have money and we have speed. Conversely, what would you say are the risks involved there are, of not filing an amended H-1B petition? Yes, there are a lot of risks involved in not filing the petition and only going with that LCA update only. Um, there's a risk of a notice of intent to revoke. Generally, when you only file an LCA update, um, which we're going to there's a risk that USCIS would conduct a site visit after the petition approval, which we'll discuss in a little detail later. Um, if the employee is no longer at that location, it's possible USCIS could send a follow-up email request to determine the employee's whereabouts. Um, this could also lead to an issuance of a notice of intent to revoke or an even potential revocation of the H-1B petition if it's discovered that the employee is no longer at that initial location on the LCA. Um, considerable expenses could be incurred to respond to the notice of intent to revoke, and if the petition is revoked, the employee could be determined to be out of status and would have to depart the U.S. immediately. Um, once out of the U.S., they'd have to file a new petition for consular processing, and then that could delay the employee from coming back to the U.S. for, for weeks or months. Another risk involved with not filing the amendment uh, has to do with travel. Generally, we're seeing that the, the U.S. consulates abroad are refusing to issue visas when there's been a change in work location or a change in the end client without an amended petition being filed. The consulates take the position that the location where the H-1B worker will be working in the U.S. must match the LCA that's filed with the H-1B petition. Another risk involved has to do with the employee's status. There's a higher risk that the USCIS could take the position that the employee was out of status for the entire period that he or she worked at the new location, which was not covered by an amended petition. It's likely that USCIS could issue a request for evidence when the extension petition is filed and may even approve the extension petitions for consular processing only, so they wouldn't get a new I-94 card with their approval if USCIS views this time at the new location as time out of status. Also, USCIS could find the employee ineligible to adjust status, again, if this time period out of status occurs prior to filing the I-45 application. And finally, another risk... Actually, you mean adjust status, you mean get their green card if they're applying for exactly. a green card process. Right. And a final risk is that the employer uh, may not be able to offer bona fide employment. So there's a risk that USCIS could deny the petition in its entirety 
um, again, they can interpret the movement of the beneficiary without the amended petition as, as proof that the employer is not able to offer bona fide employment or that petitions are for speculative employment. Um, this can impact not only the individual petition, but also all of the employer's other H-1B petitions. Okay, Ashley, thank you very much. And I see that um, you know we've covered this very, very in depth. I do have one question, though, because there is apparently a very significant difference between filing the amended H-1B petition and just filing the LCA prior to the person moving to the new location. My question is just in reference to the RFEs that we're receiving on the extensions. Um, Chris, I'm just wondering, if we quote the Efren Hernandez 2003 letter and we quote the 10 years of the policy memos and guidance that um, Ashley had referred to, uh, is it possible to win an RFE like that? And what is your success rate? What would you think would not your success rate of how successful or what can an employer expect? Well, I'm, <clears throat> excuse me. What we'd be quoting there, uh, the things you mentioned, these are largely memorandum or, and or letters. These are not binding on, on USCIS at this point. Um, so if you're going to directly argue this position with them, I think you've got a, frankly, an uphill battle. It, it's, if they've made the determination uh, that this requires an amended petition, uh, you probably should, should consider filing amended petitions rather than, than arguing this issue with USCIS. Okay, but Ashley, if you have a case in queue, do you think it, there's a chance that you'd be successful by quoting all these memos in this 10 years of past history? I mean, there's always going to be a chance. I just think it's not going to be very high in light of how they're taking this very conservative, restrictive approach. Okay. Now, I know that we had reported earlier about the USCIS conducting the site visits, and we referenced it, uh, especially based on locations listed on approved H-1B petitions. Uh, these visits can occur at any time during the petition's validity period or before. Are the emails a change in this program? Um, I think that there are, in addition to just having the site visits, I think we're clearly seeing that they're sending emails out as well. Are the emails a change in this program? What do you think, Chris? Uh, the emails are a relatively recent development. We have primarily uh, have seen these probably in the past six months or so. Um, now, the what's called the Administrative Site Visit and Verification Program, or ASVVP is the acronym, uh, was set up in July of 2009, so it has been around for a while. Um, and the goal was uh, permit USCIS to perform pre- and post-adjudication site visits, so before and or after deciding a, an application. Um, these emails that we're seeing tend to be focused on, on past adjudications, uh, so cases that have already been approved um, they are visiting these work sites sometime after the approval date to see if the person is actually there. Um, now, subsequent to these site visits, USCIS is emailing the H-1B employers and sometimes their attorneys. We, uh, we do occasionally get these. Sometimes they just go to the employer. Um, and these emails occur if the officer was not able to verify uh, the information on the petition, namely that the employee was actually working where they're supposed to be working. Chris, what about these emails? Are they all the same, or is there at least some type of commonality between the issues that employers should be aware of to look out for? They're not exactly the same. There are some differences that, uh, to some extent, they seem to vary from officer to officer. They'll give you different deadlines. Um, but the, there is a common thread running through them. Uh, 
The main goal of these is to verify that the H-1B petitioner and the beneficiary are engaged in an employment relationship that is the same as that described in the petition. Basically, USCIS is checking up on, on what they're being told in the I-129 and make sure, making sure it's accurate. Um, so they'll confirm that the, if the employer has moved the employee to a new project or location, uh, that there's a uh, new LCA for the work location. Uh, they're verifying that the employee is actually performing the duties that are described in the petition. And they're also uh, at the court trying to see if the employee is actually working at all. Okay, but what I don't understand or what's a little confusing is they're doing the site visits already. They're taking the time to go out there. Why can't the employer, why can't the USCIS just verify the employment through the site visit? Why, do, why are the emails necessary at all? Well, it's, there are a lot of reasons. Um, even if the employee is at the work site that's listed on the petition, it's very possible the officer just can't locate the H-1B employee because the work site itself uh, may be a very large campus with a lot of buildings, or maybe security would not permit them into the, into the building to begin with. Um, perhaps the employee is not there at the work site for other reasons. Um, employees on vacation or on maternity or paternity leave. Uh, the employer should be able to document when, uh, when this occurred when they're responding to the email. Um, and in some cases, of course, the employee's work location has changed. So the employer may have obtained a new LCA but did not file an amendment. Um, and when that occurs, USCIS would have no uh, independent knowledge of the new location. And they would be going uh, to the original location that was listed on the Form I-129. Because remember, the LCA is being filed to the Department of Labor, and as such, even if you file an amended LCA, but you don't have an amend a new LCA, but you don't have an amended petition, USCIS has no no knowledge of that taking place. That's correct. They would have no knowledge of the new LCA at all. So, Ashley, we know that these emails are coming. What types of documents are being requested, and how long will the employer have to respond? Uh, is this the same in all site visits? Uh, email, subsequent site visit emails that you see? Okay. Definitely the emails are not all the same and the amount and types of documentation can vary. Um, some typical documents that are re being requested include project related documents such as contracts, statements of work, purchase orders, client and vendor letters. Um, they're also requesting pay records such as the employees pay stubs and W-2s. Um, they're also asking for new LCAs they're specifically requesting a new LCA if the employee has moved to a new work location that's outside the MSA or the original area of intended employment. The timeline we're seeing for the employer to respond also varies from email to email. Um, we are not seeing that they're giving much time at all. Generally, it's as little as two business days or maybe a maximum of five days to respond. Wow, two to five days. That sounds like a really tight time frame. It's understandable that this could be really difficult for an employer to kind of adhere to and to do. But employers should also understand that USCIS does not have the authority to automatically revoke the petition if the employer doesn't respond to this email. What can the employer expect if the USCIS does want to take further action? Right. So the USCIS should issue a notice of intent to revoke the petition and follow their general procedures if they want to take a formal action on this already approved petition. Um, however, even if the employer cannot respond uh, sufficiently, it may be beneficial for them to respond in some way, even if it's simply asking for more time to respond. Okay, well now they responded. Let's say the employer responds, 
but what follow-up can they expect to get from the USCIS after the response, basically, what can they expect? Well, the follow-up will definitely vary as well. It's quite possible the employer won't hear anything back from USCIS. Um, at this time, again, the follow-up program is, is relatively new, so it's hard to say that if a lack of follow-up is any cause for alarm. Um, in some instances, they will respond and say everything is sufficient. In other cases, you'll hear nothing. Um, we can report, though, that even if they did not acknowledge your email response, that we have seen subsequent H-1B approvals and visa approvals for the same beneficiaries. Well, that's good. Chris, given this unpredictability of the emails, including when they may come and what they will ask for, what steps can an employer take to protect themselves and be prepared? Well, the most important thing is to have all your records in order and have them all readily accessible. Um, this should be the public access file, pay records, um, and also a clear record of all your employee schedules. Um, so where they are uh, if there's a site visit and they don't happen to be at the work site. Um, and also, as we're going to discuss in more detail uh, and have discussed uh, in some detail already, uh, employers really want to consider whether they should be filing H-1B amendments uh, as opposed to just filing a new LCA. Because uh, as we discussed, when you file a new LCA, USCIS gets no notice of that. Um, so potentially an employee has already moved and USCIS doesn't know that. Okay, Chris, thank you. One other hot topic that we've been seeing is the issue related to H-1B legal and USCIS fee payments. This, the complex issue of payment of attorney fees for H-1B cases has been a controversy within the immigration field for many years and has been on the minds of many employers in light of the recent decisions by the Department of Labor regarding an employer to pay millions of dollars in back wages and civil monetary penalties. The crux of the problem is that the Department of Labor conflicts with the law that, is in, that it is intended to implement. Ashley, is the employer required to pay the USCIS filing fees for H-1B petitions? Well, the Immigration Nationality Act does specify that certain USCIS filing fees have to be paid by the employer. Specifically, the INA requires the employer to pay the ACQUIA training fee, which is the $1,500 or $750 fee, and the fraud fee, which is currently $500. However, there are no such provisions in the INA regarding the base filing fee, which is $325, nor are there any references to payment of attorney fees. Okay. Well, in that case, may the H-1B worker pay the attorney fees for the preparation and filing of the H-1B petition? Well, essentially, it's not illegal for the employee to pay the attorney fees. However, the Department of Labor regulations provide that imposing of an employer's business expense on the employee is equivalent to a reduction in their wage payments. The Department of Labor views attorney fees for the preparation and filing of the LCA and the H-1B petition as such of a business expense. Thus, the you know under the Department of Labor view, the salary paid to an employee, which is reduced by the expense of the attorney fees, must still be at least equal to the required wage. As we know, the required wage is the greater of the prevailing wage or the actual wage. Okay. This sounds very complicated, and I know that there's a number of problems with the Department of Labor regulations, including, uh, including, um, um, including, uh, in including the ability to follow it, which renders the regulations to be very difficult to follow. Chris, can you give us an idea of what's going on with these regulations? Well, that's true, Aaron. These are uh, very difficult to follow. Um, for one thing, it's not clear what really constitutes uh, 
preparation and filing of an LCA or H-1B petition, which is the language that's used. Uh, there are a lot of steps uh, involved in H-1B in an H-1B filing that may or may not be considered as preparation filing of an LCA and H-1B petition. Uh, for example, typically an H-1B case uh, covered by flat rate attorney fees, which is what most attorneys do on these cases, uh, involves lots of consultations, um, and which can discuss various topics that are related to the individual. Uh, the attorney may discuss, for example, um, the beneficiary's uh, dependence status. Uh, for an H-1, this would be the H-4 status. Uh, future immigration options if the person wants to file for a green card at some point in the future. Uh, along with issues that more directly relate to the LCA and the H-1B. Now, these topics are not clearly directly related, related to the preparation and filing of the H-1B petition. Um, the work in filing this type of case also includes review of uh, the individual's documents and history of their immigration status. Um, given all these different threads that are, that are pulled together in H-1B filing, it's nearly impossible uh, to accurately parse out the amount of time and the fees that are attributed directly to preparing uh, the H-1B petition. Uh, there are just a lot of different things that go into it. Um, another issue is that the DOL regulations do not indicate whether the business expense for preparation and filing of the H-1B petition uh, should be prorated over the course of the petition validity period or within the first year of the H-1B or within the month or the pay period of the payment actually being made. Uh, for example, let's say that the attorney's fees were $1,500 for an H-1B case. Uh, should the $1,500 be considered to be deducted from the beneficiary's annual salary for the whole first year or within three years, which is the normal validity of an H-1B, or is it deducted on the day it was paid? Um, there's really no clear instruction on, on how to calculate this as, in, as a deduction. Um, also, the DOL's what's called the Field Operations Handbook uh, contains a chart that's titled H-1B Level or Degree of Wrongdoing. Um, it's something a DOL uses to calculate, uh, to calculate the, the fines for various violations. Um, now, this chart specifically includes uh, a, a violation of requiring or accepting payment of the ACWA or the training fee um, for filing an H-1B petition. Uh, clearly, that's, uh, that is wrong for an employer to do. However, the chart doesn't include any, anything relating to requiring attorney's fees. Um, thus, going by this chart, it, it appears that DOL only considers accepting the training fee to be wrongdoing, um, which, of course, is in line with the Immigration and Nationality Act, which only talks about um, accepting the training fee as being a violation of the H-1B uh, regulations. Now, for all of this, um, many uh, immigration attorneys consider the DOL regulations on H-1B attorney's fees uh, to be overreaching and almost impossible to interpret reliably. Um, now, that's also the position of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, uh, which we also known as AILA, uh, which is an organization of 9,000 uh, lawyers and law professors practicing immigration law. Um, now, payment, uh, in short, payment of attorney's fees by the beneficiary uh, is really a standard practice within the industry, uh, regardless of these, uh, this position by the DOL. Well, so Chris, we see this is a pretty serious thing, and there are very complex nuances related to who is required to pay for what and how it all shakes out. 
Ashley, what would you say are the risks that an employer faces for failing to pay the USCIS filing fees, the ACRIA fees, and or the attorney fees? Well, there are some pretty serious consequences for failure to pay the fees. Um, the INA specifically makes it a violation for an employer to be reimbursed for or for an H-1B employee to pay the ACRIA fee. Um, the employer could face a $1,000 civil monetary penalty for each violation and be required to reimburse the employee for the amount paid. Um, but just, just to be aware that this ACRIA fee is the only fee that has this enforcement clause related to it. Uh, in addition, employers could face debarment, um, you know, be barred from filing future H-1B petitions or LCAs if they're found to have willfully failed to pay the required wages. And then finally, as we're seeing that through these site visit emails, um, USCIS is collecting the pay records and in their requests for evidence, and this could always lead to a discovery that the beneficiary was not paid the required wage, possibly due to the beneficiary being required to pay part of the USCIS filing fees or the attorney fees. Um, this could lead to further investigations into the company um, by the USCIS or the Department of Labor. Okay, so keeping this in mind, the, ben the, the penalties seem pretty steep, but is there any part that the H-1B worker can pay the fees that are incurred? Any part can, can they pay the fees that are incurred in filing the H-1B? For example, like credential evaluations or applying for the visa at the consulate abroad. Any, anything at all that can be very clearly saying that we can very clearly say, hey, this is a fee that if the employee pays, we know you're going to be okay. Yeah, well, the Department of Labor does recognize that it, it is permissible to have the foreign national pay legal fees related to matters in their own personal interest. And the Department of Labor Field Operations Handbook does mention that an employer's business expenses does not include costs or fees connected with the H-1B worker's personal obligations in obtaining the visa, such as obtaining translations for credential materials um, or, or hiring their own attorney to negotiate an employment contract or even to review the H-1B worker's immigration status or to obtain the visa for the H-1B worker or his family members. Thus, even under the Department of Labor interpretation, payment of some portion of the legal fee is permissible. Okay. So... What should an employer do to ensure they're in full compliance with the H-1B laws? The simplest choice from a legal point of view is for the employer to pay the attorney fees and the U.S. filing fees in full. Uh, as my father taught me, when in doubt, do without. It's nice to get reimbursed if you can, but if the benefit does not outweigh the risk, especially in light of the government themselves seem to be confused as to what is required and what is not required, the safest thing to do is to simply... Um, pay all the fees. In the alternative, as explained above, the Department of Labor regulations address the question of whether after subtract, uh, subtracting the cost of the legal fees, the individual's wage is at the proper level. Thus, the other potential safe harbor would be to set the H-1B beneficiary's wages higher than the minimum legally required wage in the amount that would compensate for the attorney fees so that after they do the proper deductions, they would see that you're still complying with the prevailing wage or the required wage or the actual wage, whichever is higher. Well, thank you all for joining us today. I think we've conveyed several very important hot topics that seriously impact the preparation and filing of your H-1B petitions and extensions, as well as employee locations and the importance about knowing who is responsible for what fees. 
We hope that you found this helpful. And if you have any questions about your current policies and compliance with the law to create a formula of success, please schedule a time to speak to a smart and knowledgeable practitioner, such as both Chris and Ashley, to make sure that you're well taken care of. Thank you all for listening.